Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM, KSRQ. We're also available online for the masses to devour. You can listen to us live at RadioNorthland.org. And if you missed out on the live recording, you missed out on the live show, you can go to RadioNorthland.org. We've got a Wrestling Memories Then and Now page. You can check out all the archived interviews from the past six years of, of Wrestling Memories. We are well into our seventh season, so you can check that out. we got our SoundCloud page. Very convenient, very easy to grab, and we're also on the TuneIn app if you want to listen live on your smartphone. You can take that thing everywhere and listen to Wrestling Memories. Hi, I'm Glenn Broggett. The grizzled veteran Mike McCurdy, he's uh, on assignment, and he's promised he's got a, a good guest a real whopper he's uh, going to be reeling in but i don't know he's got a uh, big shoes to fill here uh, because i've got a great guest and and this guy i watched uh back in the uh, 1980s around the mid 1980s when i was uh really really uh becoming just immersed in pro wrestling i started watching in the early 1980s uh, around 82 uh awa so i was about in my third fourth year of wrestling being a fan just being a young kid and i remember this guy because he was, he was a guy who did the honors for a lot of the, the big stars of the AWA. I mean, he didn't exactly win a lot of matches or even come close sometimes, but he made a lot of those guys look very good. And we got to remember those guys, the enhancement talent for all of their, their wonderful contributions to pro wrestling. He broke out of that, though. He, he didn't just uh, wasn't settling for the guy who was uh, going to be uh, taking the fall. No, no, no. He moved on into other endeavors in pro wrestling. He uh, put on a mask. He was with the Texas Hangman. Uh, he made it to WCW in a big tag team. He was Mean Mike. He's made it to Japan. He's been around the world them back again and you know what he got out of the pro wrestling business and had a, a second life and a success a successful business i'm getting ahead of myself i'm very excited to talk about what he's uh, doing today as well of course yesterday we're going to talk with the man himself we, i knew him as mike richards on the awa television network mr mike moran thank you mike for uh, being a guest here on wrestling memories then and now well thanks for that introduction glenn holy cow that was a lot of uh Good stuff. I'm glad you moved on from the enhancement talent to actually becoming a hangman. That certainly sounds a little more impressive, at least. Well, you know what? Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, this is just kind of the movements you made in your pro wrestling career, and you have so much that we can cover here. I just didn't want to have you be limited as uh, the underneath guy. I mean, there, there was more to your career than that, my friend. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, and, and the bottom line is you got to pay your dues. You know, you, you get in the business, you start out as an, an, an indie guy, then you work your way up to an enhancement guy, and then hopefully eventually you get your break. And that's why we had to put the masks on because we had been, my partner and I both, he was Rick Gantner, I was Mike Richards. We were doing jobs for so long when we finally presented the Texas Hangman gimmick to Greg. Um, he's like, this is great because you guys are wearing hoods. We can do this. And knock on wood, you know, he, he, they pushed us pretty hard, which mm -hmm. was awesome. Oh, absolutely. But before then, though, I want to go back and, and, and just talk a little bit about how you got involved in the pro wrestling business. Were you a fan growing up? I know you were in the, the Midwest as well as I. Uh, you couldn't uh, avoid the AWA. You couldn't avoid pro wrestling. But were you? how big of a fan were you? And really, what was it that, that grabbed you about pro wrestling enough to the point that you wanted to get into the ring and, and do this uh, You know, for a good part of the younger years of your life? Yeah, I was a huge fan. You know, I had always watched wrestling on TV, but I went and saw my first show in Milwaukee at the arena. My friend had some tickets. Of, you know, I was only like maybe 13, maybe 12. And I, once I saw it live, I was addicted. I remember actually being at the bus stop after the show and saying to my friend, I am going to be a pro wrestler. And from that day on, I lived, eat, and breathed wrestling. I would go and get all the magazines from the pharmacy whenever they came out. I was I, I built a ring in my basement, a makeshift ring. We had belts. It was called the BWA Basement Wrestling Association. And of course, I was a champion because I was the booker. And um, it, yeah, I, I lived in, in my neighborhood. I was known as the kid that was going to be a pro wrestler. And and I'd wait out in back at the back of the buildings for the guys and take pictures with my instant, you know, my one step camera. And you know, just yeah, I put it this way: it was in my blood once I saw it live. Definitely. Now, who were the guys that you, you liked? Were, were you a guy that cheered on the faces, or did you have that uh, soft spot in your heart for the heels? Uh, because, I mean, whether it was a heel or face, these guys just seemed larger than life uh, in, in those uh, days. Yeah, they really did. It was crazy. I mean, you know, you, I'd see these guys come up, and it just was just so cool to see them close up. And but for me, not surprisingly, I guess, when you look at how it ended up, my favorite was always the mask guys. I loved the Super Destroyer, and then my most favorite was the Super Destroyer 2, who later became Sergeant Slaughter. 
And then later on, of course, I got to meet him. Never got to work him, but got to meet him many times. And he actually gave my, my other Hangman I partner uh, a tryout match for WWE. So that was kind of a cool circular thing. But anyways, yeah. So, yeah, Super Destroyer 2 was my favorite. I, I didn't really have a whole lot of favorites besides that. I just loved the business altogether. And uh, I knew as soon as I got old enough, I was getting in the business. Mm-hmm. Now, where did that door get open for you uh, as far as uh, getting, you know, broke, breaking into the business, uh, getting the training? Uh, who did you seek out uh, to, to help you uh, get into the business just to find your way? Because, I mean, pro wrestling, especially back in those days, because it was still very strong in the kayfabe, was a very close-knit sort of uh, you know, a business where they didn't uh, play too kindly with uh, outsiders. And if you had to have some, some pretty strong stuff to uh, just make it past the initial proceedings, uh, let alone and get the, the proper training. What was your pro wrestling story like in regards to training? I got lucky, actually, to be honest with you, because you're right. It, back then, it was, the, the KFA was so strong. I mean, they didn't want to smarten you up at all, but my stepdad actually knew Herman Schaefer, who I don't know if you know who he is. He was a TV job guy for Burn. He was like 6'6", six, oh, yeah. six, 350-pound guy. Um, he knew him from a bar that he went to, and he actually, when I was 17, he introduced me to him at that bar, and they used to run shows at this place called the Fed Hall in Milwaukee every three weeks on a Sunday afternoon where they would be the stars. It was all the TV guys from Vern that would be stars on their show. And he said, if you want to come help put the ring up in the day, get in the ring. We'll see what you got. And I was like, okay. And I went and did that. And because I had been practicing so long as a kid, I kind of had all the basics down. I didn't know how to bump. I didn't know how to hit the ropes. But I knew how, you know, I knew how to chain wrestle and I knew how to, you know, my, my foot movement. And he just, he just took me under his wing, but he was so big, there was only so much he could do. So then eventually Jake the Milkman Millman stepped in and Tom Rocky Stone, and those guys kind of refined me. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that uh, Jake the Milkman Milliman and Tom Rocky Stone. You know what? Growing up watching AWA, uh, me and my friends and my cousins. So I mean, those guys seem just as big to us as the, the you know the guy that they were wrestling and doing the honors right. for. Because you know those guys, they were always such a presence on the weekly television and being able to get in to those TV tapings uh, back in the old days of the TV studios in Minneapolis. Now I want to talk about you know getting in and, and you know you talked about how you broke into the business and your training what was those first matches like and how did you find your way into uh i mean you mentioned the guys before but how did you get your way into uh the awa and and finding yourself on television actually working with some of these big stars of the day that you you watched from the stands well my first match was um was in november 17th of 1982 and that was after herman stone and jay kind of refined me i wrestled this guy named bad brain lucas at a little at that fed hall the same place i helped put the ring up to get my kind of gets my foot in the door and then what happened is stone and jake stepped in you know refined me and it was really up to stone because stone believe it or not had actually been on the road in the louisiana territory for watts and he had been in the territory for geigel in central states as Steve Hall, which is his real name. So he had connections with Vern and with WWE, and it was really up to him. So once I was ready, he brought me up to do TV, and I was Mike Madigan when I first started wrestling at the Fed Hall and all those local indie shows. And then when I went up to do Vern, he just said, well, now you're Mike Richards, and hey, Stone was the boss at the time. So I became Mike Richards, and he brought me up there, and you got paid a buck fifty for their TV taping, whether you worked one time or three times, because they would do three tapings in one night at the studio. And sometimes you might be like the second match on the first taping, the fourth match on the second taping, and the first match on the third taping. And it didn't matter how many times you worked, you got paid a buck fifty. And but you know what? I would have done it for free because I was wrestling, literally locking up with some of the guys I grew up idolizing. I mean, you, that's priceless. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm looking at uh, some of the some of the ch- the matches uh, online here of, of of the times you worked. Uh, just a, just a couple of guys. What we want to talk uh-huh. about who you worked with uh, when you started up in '83 into '84. And this was right around the time where the AWA was still getting some pretty damn good houses too. This was be- right right at the beginning of Vince McMahon starting to put his pieces. Vince McMahon Jr. Uh, buying the the company from his dad, so expansion was starting to seep into the landscape of pro wrestling. But still at that time when you, when you were getting in doing television jobs uh the awa was was doing decent houses i mean it was still very much uh one of the stronger stronger companies in the country uh quite easily the number two uh to, to the nwa and what they were doing at that moment in time 
I agree. I think, I mean, at that time they were really strong still. I mean, TV was strong. The house shows were strong. A lot of, you know, as Mike Richards, I didn't do a lot of house shows, but occasionally I would get thrown a bone because with, with, with Vern or with Greg, because he was kind of helping out then, if you were a good hand, they would throw you some house shows just to kind of say, hey, we do appreciate what you're doing. But I mean, I just doing those TVs, the first time, one of the first times I went out there, I got to work, work Nick Bockwinkle. Now, this is a kid who grew up watching Nick defend that strap. Can you imagine how so surreal it was when I'm at the studio where I watched the shows for years and I'm locking up with Nick Bockwinkle? That was pretty special, and I got to work the Freebirds, Bruiser Brody, Stan Hansen, Wahoo, the Mass Superstar, Tommy Rich, the Fabs, the Road Warriors, Greg Gagne, Ventura. I mean, it, it, the, the, the names are endless. I mean, that's, that's just priceless. It was awesome. It was, it was awesome. I honestly would have done it for free, but I took the buck 50 pretty happy. Well, you and Tom Stone uh, had a chance, too, to uh, wrestle uh, Hulk Hogan in a, a two-on-one handicap. And this was uh, around 1983. And the unique thing about Hogan was, you know, when, when Vern initially brought him in, he hooked him up with Johnny Valiant, and they were going to keep him sort of as a heel. But it was one of those things where the fans really kind of dictated the flow, one of those t- instances where Hogan was just so over that they had no other option but to uh, actually benefit from, from, from a turn and making him uh, this giant babyface but you had a chance to kind of work in the ring with him as well in those TV uh, tapings. Yeah, I'm actually impressed that you know that because I've been looking for that darn tape forever. How did you even find out about that? Well, I I, I, I went online. Uh, to Yeah, I did some research. Uh, for the amazing because, few- I mean, I've been looking for that, that video forever, but, but, but I'll take it a step further. Yeah, me and, me and Stone worked him, but believe it or not, I also got to work him in a singles match at Wrestling at the Chase in St. Louis. Oh, wow. And, yeah, that was crazy. And that was, again, through Stone, because Stone had connections with everybody. So he used to bring us, not only were we doing TV tapings in uh, Minneapolis, we were going down to Kansas City and doing tapings at the Kemper and all around there. And we were also doing tapings at the Wrestling at the Chase, which is really cool, because that's kind of an iconic building. And I just got the luck of the draw. I got to work Hogan in a singles. And believe it or not, this is how green he was. After the match, when we got back in the dressing room, he got scolded out unbelievably because they yelled at him because he let me do too much and he, he even let me mirror him over and you know at his size he shouldn't have done that but he was green and so was I. You know, it, so it's, he actually got scolded. <laughs> oh wow! You know, and it's so amazing yeah. that that St. Louis could could be just such a pro wrestling power and just be that standalone town because it really wasn't a territory per se. Because you know, later on, Central States was was in and around that area as well. But St. Louis was kind of the thing that shined in and of itself on its own, and you could definitely see that in in the uh, the talent that was able to be brought in. Of course, with Sam Muchnick, a longtime promoter there, and Larry Matisic also uh, learning uh, under the wing. Of, uh, of Sam so that was one of those unique places where you could get like an all-star game of guys and to be able to be in that locker room and work that must have been just a, a heck of a thrill for you I mean early on you, you being still very young in your career it was crazy that was like I'm, I'm guessing 84 yeah it was weird I mean there's it was such a mixture too it was like Hulk Hogan was there Crusher Blackwell was there Blackjack Lonzo was there but then you had guys from like other territories there too, you know, Dickie Murdoch's there. It, it, yeah, it was the Bruiser. It was very cool because it was such a mixture of guys. It kind of got me out of my zone of where I had been with Vern, and it, yeah, it was it was very cool. And then later on, I actually went to the Central States territory again through Stone. He got me booked for Bob Geigel, and I, I did an actual summer in the Central States territory as as Mike Madigan. That was my first territory, and. Uh, that was really cool because one time we did work the Keel Auditorium, which again was a melting pot because Iceman Parsons was there, Rufus R. Jones was there. Um, I was in a six-man. It was me, Gypsy Joe, and I don't even remember who my partner was, but against Buzz Tyler and the Rockers. Well, not the Rockers. It was Marty Janetti and Tommy Rogers, who actually was one of the RPMs that later became Tommy Lane. But, yeah, it was very cool. I mean, that, was, that, that, that area was just such a cool area because they had so many guys from so many different areas. Very cool. No. What was it like to to work uh, for Bob Geigel, uh, you know, around that time when he was uh, a big part of uh, Central States and and also the National Wrestling Alliance? Uh, When I think of Kansas wrestling, Kansas City, I think of Central States, I think of Bob Geigel, and I also think of uh, Bulldog Bob Brown. Talk a little bit about Geigel, and did you have a chance to also to to be around when when Bob was in the territory? Yeah, I actually... 
I honestly wrestled Bob Brown at the Chase too. The only matches I had at the Chase was Bob Brown, Angelo Mosca Jr., and Hulk Hogan. And um, then the other times it was you know was the TV tapings and things like that. But it was it was cool territory. But I mean honestly, you didn't make a lot of money. You know we all lived in Kansas City, and we would just out shoot from there. And it it was it was my first territory. I probably wasn't ready. Stone got me booked there. I, the only reason I got booked there is because it was a touring battle royal in Kansas City at the Kemper, and Stone brought a bunch of us down from Milwaukee, and they were short on a guy, and Bob Geigel said, is there a guy that's, who's your best guy? And he said, you know, Mike, and he put me with our crews, and we had a good match, and he said, if you ever want to come back, you're welcome. So I called, and that's back in the days when you didn't have cell phones. So I called him, and he booked me, and I came in, and it, it was it was okay. It was great. It was a great experience. The, the coolest thing that came out of it is me and Marty, that was Marty's first territory, Marty Gennetti. Mm-hmm. And him and I became very tight, and we've been friends now since, you know, he's he lived in the house I actually live in here. He was my roommate at one time, and, and him and I have been tight now for 30-something years. So some, that was the good thing that came out of it. But put it this way, it was a tough territory, and you didn't make a lot of money. And when I finished up, Marty drove me to the bus station, <laughs> the Greyhound <laughs> station, to get home. So it wasn't very prosperous, but it was awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned, uh, we're going to get out of the uh, wrestling of the chase thing, but I, I, you mentioned that you uh, worked uh, Angelo Mosca Jr. Now, the knock on him was, you know, he uh, was a second-generation guy. He may have been pushed a little bit too far, uh, too too fast, too soon sort of thing. Uh, what can you remember yep. from working with, with Angelo Mosca Jr.? Because he, he was a little bit raw. You know, when, when yeah. you're watching it, I mean, I've been watching some of the stuff on WWE Network of uh, when he was in Mid-Atlantic. Very, very, a little bit raw, but then again, he kind of had a rocket, uh, you know, the, the, the rocket thing was attached to him, you know, and he was the lightning bolt and he was ready to go. But what do you remember working with uh, with Angelo Mosca Jr.? Uh, like I said, uh, there's been a knock on him for many years because just too much too soon. Yeah, I think the reason, I mean, again, I'll keep my mind, I was pretty green at the time. But I, even I was more composed in the ring than he was when we worked. I mean, he was just blowing up, and he was just super. He was one of those guys that was just super intense, and he just couldn't relax. And, you know, I, I again, I think it was just too much too soon, and he just didn't have a grasp of it, and he was pushed into a spot he wasn't ready for. And, you know, he was a very nice guy, but I just think he just, you know, unfortunately sometimes in this business, they push guys too I mean, you know, I, I could tell you endless stories about guys I've worked that – that were just not ready for the spot they were in, and I was much better than they were, but because of their size or because of their name, they got a push, and most times they fail. Sometimes they figure it out, you know. Now, I want to talk a little bit about another, pro- another. Uh, I guess it was uh, a consortium of promoters that wanted to uh, take on Vince McMahon around 1984 into 85. I, I, and, and they had the best of intentions, but again, when you get so many personalities, especially on the promotion side, it was uh, lucky if they could order lunch, let alone promote all of these wonderful guys that were in this group of wrestlers. Uh, I want to talk about the, uh, the Pro Wrestling USA, and you ended up working uh, some tapings there against uh, some some pretty good, pretty good competition here. I'm looking at the mass superstar you got to be in the ring with, uh, Animal and Hawk, the Road Warriors, to guys like Kendo Nagasaki and Butch Reed. Uh, you talk about getting some more seasoning. I mean, that Pro Wrestling USA, though short-lived, did offer some opportunities at those tapings uh, to, to to get uh, you know all uh, the wrestling at the chase opportunities for uh, different guys from around the different territories. Yeah, that was awesome. I mean, and, 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 you know, Mass Superstar, again, being a mass mark that I was, that was a huge thing for me. I mean, wrestling guy that I grew up was one of the few mass guys that I liked. I mean, it was awesome. Yeah, and that was, that was a good time. That was a really good time. And it's funny because my partner, uh, Bo Payne, who was the original other hangman, Rick Antner, if you look at that same time, he wrestled the Road Warriors on that same taping I did, but his partner was Rick Rob Steiner, who eventually became one of the Steiner brothers. So it's just so funny how, again, paying your dues. At that time, he was just a job of paying his dues, too, or enhancement town. But, um, yeah, that was that was a really good time. Um, we were also doing WWE tape because, again, because of Stone, he knew Terry Garvin from Kansas City. Mm-hmm. So not only were we doing the Vern tapings, but we also started doing the WWE Challenge and Superstars tapings, which was awesome, too. I mean, I... We went over there, and those were all over the country. So you'd get paid trans to go there, and uh, it was still buck fifty. I don't know why the buck fifty was the <laughs> standard job. Got, yeah, it just seems so odd that that just keeps being the recurring <laughs> theme for the for the for the price here. It's like, how am I, yeah, that, that's our buck fifty boys over there. 
Yeah, yeah. Let's get the buck fifty, guys. It doesn't matter if they if they get killed or not. They're, 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 that's what they're getting paid, and I don't care how. The only good thing about WWE was like you got paid trans, whereas like in other words, Vern would pay a buck fifty, but you just drove up to Minneapolis wherever the tapings were, and you never got trans. For for WWE, you know, let's say they're doing tapings at the Louisville Garden. Well, you get whoever drove would get an extra probably five hundred dollars in gas because they would pay that gladly because it would cost more to fly us. So you you drive there and you do your tapings, but there I got to work the Hard Foundation, I worked Demo, Demolition, One Man Gang, Greg Valentine, Ted DiBiase, Rick Rude, Haku, Big Boss. I was actually Big Boss Man's tryout match because they knew I was a good hand, and uh, he had just come in from being, I believe, Ray Trailer in WCW, and he was just it was literally the first time he did that gimmick, and I worked him somewhere in the East Coast, but I did the match with him, and I actually got a whopping $50 bonus because I did so good. But, uh, yeah, he, uh, I was his trial match and he got hired, which was great because he was a very nice guy. I see you also had a chance to, to work with uh, a guy from uh, the bygone era, Killer Khan. Uh, of course, uh, I think of Killer Khan. I think of the old wrestling magazine covers of him with the angle where uh, the Andre broken leg. What, what, what was I mean, that's a fascinating character because he just had that larger than life cartoon sort of thing vibe to him. What was like you got a chance to uh, work with him a couple of occasions on some tapings. Uh, what was he like to work with in the ring, though, for you? It was cool. He was very easy, actually. He was really easy. He um, did that big flying knee drop from the from the top, or sometimes a second, which was super scary because he's such a big guy, and you're laying there and you're just saying, "Please, please, don't kill me." But he was actually very easy, very nice. Uh, the only thing about him that I didn't like really is because he spit that green mist. Oh yeah. And so then you come back and you got like this green face, and then you walk into all the boys, and they're all kind of giving you that look like. Awkward, you know, so it was a little it was a little weird, but you always got an extra fifty dollar bonus, which wasn't very much, but I guess at the time I thought it was, but you you always got a fifty dollar bonus for anything special you'd get a fifty dollar bonus. If you had to put the snake on you, you got a fifty dollar bonus. If you had to get your hair cut, you got a three hundred dollar bonus from Beefcake. And if you you know, got the mist spit in your face, you get an extra fifty bucks. I guess it's fifty bucks to get <laughs> The spit in your face doesn't sound like a lot, but at the time it was decent. But it was easy. He was great. He was very nice. Well, when I think about the haircutting, I, I think about uh, Chris Curtis uh, when when, when yep. Beefcake got him. Man, that was that wasn't uh-huh. just a little uh, off the top. Man, he he really did a number on him. One of one of uh, many that uh, fell fell victim to yeah. that. But but man, that was that was that moment out of all the haircuts. Man, he got him so good in the front. It was just insane. He looked really that he looked was like shocking. a clown. That was the first one, and that was in Louisville, I believe. But I was there. And it was crazy because, you know, after that, like Frankie DeFalco and a bunch of guys, I never got it because I was kind of like a face with WWE, so I never really worked with the heels. Um, but, yeah, Chris got that, and I drove with Chris. And it was so funny because Chris had a wedding to go to that weekend. Oh, no. And he's like, man, I got good news and bad news for my wife. He goes, because you got paid like an extra 300 bucks. And at the time, 300 bucks was a lot of money. And he goes, oh, man, she's going to be happy about the 300 bucks, but she is not going to be happy that I'm walking, I'm coming to the wedding bald. I mean, he got shaved bald. Because oh. you know what you what you saw on TV after that, they just shaved him bald because he had that curly hair. You, you had to shave him bald. So we're walking to the car. There's no kids. Because he was, Chris, if you knew Chris Curtis, he's got a great sense of humor. We're walking to the car, and ahead of us is King Kong Bundy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... and Chris Curtis says to Bundy, he goes, hey, Dad, is there any way I can use the car tonight? (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Bundy turns around, he goes, don't call me Dad. It was awesome. It was great. But, yeah, that, that, uh... That's a true story, and, and yeah, he, I'm, I don't know how his wife reacted to that, but it's funny because this weekend I'm flying up to Milwaukee because that's where I'm from mm-hmm. and, and uh, going to a wedding, and so this Sunday I'm, I, I've actually got a, a get-together with a bunch of the guys from the, you know, that we all did, so it's you know, Chris is going to be there, Stone's going to be there, Jake's going to be there, Herman's going to be there, Woody Wilson, uh, Spike Jones, just a bunch of guys that we all were AWA guys, so should be pretty cool. I haven't seen these guys in forever, so should be nice. Yeah, I've had Chris on the on the program uh, at least a couple of times here uh, in, in in the past six years, and I've really enjoyed yeah, having book, him right? on the air. Yeah, yeah. When he was promoting the book, and I hear he's uh, yeah. he's expanding the book now, from what I hear for next for uh, early release next year. So we may have to get him on. Maybe get a couple of you guys on do a little roundtable. 
Yeah, awesome. Yeah, Chris is a great dude. Uh, he's supposed to be there Sunday, so I'm looking forward to seeing him. I literally have not talked to Chris, and I moved out of Milwaukee 20 years ago, so I probably haven't seen him in 20 years. Yeah, that's crazy. Oh, wow. Because yeah, I used to, you know, that's where I grew up, but I moved here 20 years ago, so I've lost touch with a lot of the guys except for just by Facebook. But, uh, yeah, so 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 Chris did that thing, and then, uh, you know, like Frankie did the, the, the thing with the shaving head, but after Chris, they toned it down, and the guys would just get, like, you know, a couple snips here and there. Yeah, because that but was... They still got the $300, so Chris kind of got the raw deal. Yeah, they should they should have busted him up uh, at least an extra hundred hundo uh, on top of right. the three hundred for that. Like maybe yeah. two, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just just to be on the safe side. Uh, yes, uh, this is wrestling memories then and now. I'm uh, talking with Mike Moran, uh, aka Mike Richards, Texas Hangman. He was mean Mike and disorderly conduct. We're we're we're, we're moving along through the uh, the Mike Moran story. He's still working as Mike Richards, and I, you know, you mentioned working at the uh, WWF tapings. You've done some EWA stuff when in the Minneapolis days of the TV studio. But one of the things that I watched a lot of as a kid due to its uh, coverage on ESPN and the syndicated shows was that when the AWA decided to take uh, things out out west to the showboat in Las Vegas. Now, this wasn't the first casino that the AWA had a TV sh- uh, on for their ESPN show because they did have uh, the Tropicana in Atlantic City to get the first couple of tapings and first couple of episodes. So when they moved out west, they, you know, previously they were at the Riviera. And then the showboat all of a sudden was the place to go for these tapings. And you, uh, of course, uh, had uh, an opportunity to work out there uh, tagging up with Rick Gatner and working various tags with others and doing the singles. Talk about getting out to the showboat because, man, you guys, AWA wrestlers, Sin City, my God, if you guys uh, were going home uh, every night early and having milk and cookies and going to bed, I'd have to call BS on that. Well, it was cool. I mean, I got to work with a lot of different guys out there, Rock and Roll Express. Um, I remember wrestling this really green guy, Rocky Mountain Thunder. I heard he passed. Yes. Back, but yeah, it, him, uh, Alexis Smirnoff, and uh, Gordienko. I mean, there was just endless guys. But that was that was very cool. They used to show, the, the showboat was where the main guys would stay. And, of course, us enhancement talent would stay at a place across the street. And um, it was cool. I mean, guess what we were getting paid? for the TV <laughs> Let me guess, uh, the Buck 50 boys ride again? There you go. It didn't matter if you were in Vegas or if you were in Minneapolis. You were getting a Buck 50, no matter how many you did. But the, the weird thing about the showboat taping or the, the, were, were that the faces were in one side of the showboat and the heels were in the other side. And what would happen earlier in the day, we would all meet, I mean, everybody in Greg's room. So you'd have 60 guys in Greg's room, uh, you know, and we would just kind of go over who was working who and all that. And if you wanted to talk, because cause it was very still in the kayfabe thing then, and if you wanted to talk about who, what you were doing with who and who or whatever the case is, you could do it then. But most of the time, there's so many guys, so much going on, and I didn't need to. I mean, I, I already knew I could do whatever I did. I didn't need to plan anything out ahead of time. And then what would happen is, though, is there was phones. And so you'd have to call the operator at the showboat and say, can you transfer me to the other dressing room? And then they transfer you, and you just go over whatever you wanted to go through. So it was very, very unique for that tapings. But you did that. Yeah, I wrestled Tommy Rich there. I wrestled Wahoo there, uh, Zabisco, the Ninja. Um, it was it was a good time. I mean, it, yeah, you're right. We had a lot of fun there. I mean, on a buck fifty salary back then, I wasn't doing too much crazy stuff, which I did later on. But um, it was it was it was awesome. It was just it was just still very cool to go out there and. I was actually there when Nobs, not Nobs, Sags, he was wrestling, and he got his front tooth knocked out. He took a post from one of the Rock and Roll Express, and that's how he lost. That's how he lost that front tooth. I was actually there the night that happened. Oh, amazing! Yeah, cool. Amazing. You know, when I think about to the AWA showboat, uh, I also think about a guy who, in the last couple of years, has kind of gained some uh, in his uh, afterlife, uh, some notoriety. Uh, I've been mentioned on a few podcasts or two because of his uh, just overall zaniness, and uh, you know, when he was on the camera. I want to talk about the guy who announced and did interviews. Uh, you know, I know that uh, you didn't get interviewed by him per se, but he was in the uh, in the uh, the mix. I guess was Larry Nelson. Now that was a guy that just had some 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 energy, and we heard some of it was uh, not exactly uh, just artificial. But he was he was a guy that yeah. was just a crazy crazy kind of a character though that was uh, part of the the framework of what the AWA was about in the showboat. But I I miss personalities like Larry. I agree. Larry was great. He uh, you know he liked to 
have his fun and, you know, loosen up before he did his thing and all that. But, yeah, he was great. I mean, he was a great talent. Um, and, you know, what's really strange is when I look back at some of those old Hangman videos, late, you know, as we got to be the Hangman, Eric Bischoff inter- interviewing us at the ringside at the uh, Rochester tapings. Who would ever guess that would have happened? The guy who was interviewing us became the, the guy who was running WCW. I mean, it's just weird. But, yeah, Larry Nelson was great. Um, honestly, although they had a lot of talent there. You know, they really did. I mean, it was the, the AWA at that time was still chucking away. I just wish Vern would have kind of evolved, and I think he just didn't want to. He was so kayfabe. He was so bad that literally, I'm not kidding you, one of the last shows we did for him was at that uh, was at St. Paul Civic Center, and it was, I think you, you might know this more than I do, it was a big show. It was like the Clash. It was a big one. Flair was there again. Oh, it, it, it was the, uh, the last Super Clash, wasn't it? The Super Clash yes. 4? Yes, yes. And we worked Nord and Barbarian, which I like both those guys, but that's literally like fighting for your life. <laughs> and um, it was, he is so old school that literally we're trying to put our match together in the back. And he tells us we need to go into our broom closet in case like a maintenance guy walks by. And we're like, really? I mean, you know, we're at the end of the days and all that. We all knew that. But yeah, Vern was so old school. And then we get back and Vern starts chewing me and Bull or Rick Antner out for like 20 minutes because he said that we, you know, made them look bad because we took so much. And I'm like, well, yeah, we we took a lot because we needed to grab them in holds because if we didn't, we'd probably die. You know, I didn't say that, but <laughs> well, yeah, that. You know, I'm telling you. I mean, not gonna. I mean, I, again, I like both those guys, but wrestling Norton and Nord is like wrestling a grizzly bear and an ape. I mean, they're just so big and so strong that you just do what you have to do to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? the uh, that, that Yukon lumberjacks gimmick. I mean, geez, when you see these guys mm-hmm. coming down just to the ring side, you know, you got you got uh, Nord who's still kind of doing a little bit of his. I guess it's a. Uh, I guess he he changed up his little bit of his his victory howl when he came to the ring. Yep. You know, he howled like a like the bad moon rising. But you know that reminds me. You know, you, you talk about you, know, you run uh, under the mask uh, as part of the Texas Hangman. Let's talk about how the Texas Hangman team kind of came together because it wasn't originally the AWA for which the the uh, the Hangman kind of got together. It was more. It was at the other WCW, as I like to say, uh, out there in Chicago, a uh, promotion that. Uh, really uh, kind of uh, underappreciated for, for its run when it was there. Let's talk about uh, Windy City getting under the Texas Hangman, uh, the Hoods, forming this tag team with uh, with Bull. Well, I love your knowledge. Yes, absolutely. Uh, what happened is, is Bull started the Hangman. He was just the Texas Hangman and just doing it on Indies. And then he said, hey, man, you know, you like wearing a mask. You make, someone as a kid, I used to always make masks and all that. And he goes, why don't you wear it with me? And I said, okay, we'll try it. And we did it. And we just did it on the Indies, and then you're right, exactly. Eventually, it went to Windy City, and then we sent that, or actually, Bull sent the pictures and the stuff to Greg and said, listen, you know, we're doing this gimmick, it's doing really well, blah, 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 blah. And we were shocked that Greg actually gave us a shot, because we were thinking, you know, he's not going to give us a shot. We had been enhancement talent for so long, but I think he appreciated all the work we did for him. And he gave us a shot, and they pushed us hard. And the Windy City was great, too, don't get me wrong. And the funny thing about Windy City is I had a relationship with Windy City because I had a wrestling school in Milwaukee that I called Brew City Wrestling, and then he helped fund that. And so I was feeding guys to his TV and back and forth type thing, and Christopher Daniels was a guy I helped train and all that. And basically, bottom line is is that um, we had a really good working relationship, and Sam did a lot for us. He was great. But then, yeah, Vern gave us a, or Greg gave us a shot, actually, and we were shocked. I mean, we, honestly, they pushed us hard. I mean, we we really, I don't think we ever actually lost a match the whole time. It was, I think, I'm not sure, but I think if that promotion had stayed alive, we would have eventually gotten the tag straps. Mm-hmm. And it was just just unfortunate because that was uh, you know part of the uh, I, I guess the side effects of the older guard of the territory days that have all kind of fell. Fell in the uh, at the feet of what McMahon was doing, but Vern, Vern, it really kind of hit us hard because you know being up here in AWA country, just to, to see the way it went. I mean, considering that the AWA still had some pretty good exposure on when the afternoon shows. I remember coming home from school to watch it on ESPN. I mean, yeah, when they moved to the yeah, yeah, when they moved to the afternoons at at three. 
and you know there was things going on there was attempts to try to uh, pump some life into this 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 company a little bit and uh one of the things was the team challenge series and another was uh sort of i guess this Eric Bischoff starting to kind of make his presence beyond just the behind the scenes sort of uh, you know, medial tasks role to take a little bit more of a role in the company before he ended up, uh, of course, the AWA folding. And of course, we all know what happened with Eric. Yeah, he um, at that time, he truly was because we used to see him in back and all that. At that time, he pretty, pretty much was just truly an announcer. I mean, he wasn't a, an influence in the AWA at all. And, and, and much credit to him to, to get where he got. Um, but yeah, Vern was doing, you know, he was still trying to hold his own and all that. And I thought that that 3 o'clock slot was a pretty decent slot. And eventually USWA got it, which we were at at that time, too. Um, but, you know, yeah, it was a shame. It was really a shame that Vern just couldn't keep it. You know, he just didn't evolve. He just didn't have enough talent. He didn't pay enough. And, I mean, at the, at the end there, it, I mean, it was rough. Like, we do house shows. We ended up doing uh, Minot, I think it was Minot, North Dakota. Because, you know, you get your booking sheet for the month, and it'd usually be just the TVs, and then it'd be maybe six house shows. I mean, try you can guess what the pay was for that one. <laughs> oh, man, let me see, let me see. Hold on, I'm scratching my head here. Even as the hangman. Now, this is the hangman, even. doesn't matter. Thinking, thinking. Uh, buck 50, boys. Uh, Trek again. Uh, there you go. Yeah, we drove to Minot, North Dakota, which was from Milwaukee, I want to say maybe 16 hours. And we wrestled Buck Zumoff and Baron Von Roschke and then turned around and drove right back and nearly crashed our car because we couldn't stay awake. Got a buck fifty and, and we pretty much saw the writing was on the wall and it was the end of it and all that. And, and it did fold and all that. Um, but yeah, in that team challenge series, I mean, we, our team won, Zabisco team won. I'm still waiting for that part, portion of the million dollar check. I thought Milliman was going to um, give you the cut of the check after he got, yeah, won the well, battle royal. I'm going to tell him, I'll say, listen, if you hold him out, I want it. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. We're still waiting for that. Uh, but it was, it was, it was. That was, that was, that was really. Yeah, that was a rough time for AWA. But you know what? If you look at all the years of their greatness, I mean, overall, that was a tremendous territory, and and it's a shame it ended the way it did. But but it was, you know, it was it was an amazing territory. We all grew up on it. It was amazing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure, for sure. Boy, we might have to have you on for a second time here, uh, the way that we've been cutting through just the AWA stuff with you, with your career. This has been so much fun here uh, as we've been progressing through this hour. we still got a little ways to go, of course, but it's it just been such a fun conversation. I just wanted to kind of step back and take a breath here. Yeah, yeah. It would, listen, I'd be happy to be on again, but but uh, I guess as far as the AWA thing goes, so, so we did the AWA thing, and then that closed. And then what happened is, before it closed, I saw the writing on the wall, so I made a tape of all our AWA stuff, and I sent it to Puerto Rico because we wanted to get on the road. And I was shocked. I got a call from the Invader. You know Invader. We all know Invader's story. Mm-hmm. I got a call from Jose like three weeks later. Amigo, we love what we see. Please call me. This was on my 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 answering machine because at the time we had answering machines. So I call him back, and uh, needless to say, like three weeks later, we were in Puerto Rico, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Talk about your Puerto Rico experience working uh, down there. Uh, I do believe for for, for Carlos and Jose uh, Invader One. Talk about uh, just the. Uh, I mean, you hear so many stories to the years of guys going down there, and just the the the, the, the uh, situation with the fans. How you know a little over excited you could say uh, they could get the, at times with the things that they would throw. What was that atmosphere like at the time for you when you went down to Puerto Rico and, and worked as in regards to the audience at those shows? It was intense. Now, when we first went down, we only went down on a two-week premise of we're just going to try it out. We didn't think that there was anything more going to happen. We were going to go down for two weeks. We still both had full job, full-time jobs in Milwaukee, and uh, he had his both had his wife here, and we went down there, and they loved us. And on the last night, they gave us the straps from the Super Medicals, which was one of the Jose Estrada and his son, and. Um, we're like, well, that's odd. Why are they giving us the straps? We haven't even committed to come back. But we, you know, we did our match and all that, and uh, it, it was intense. But at that time, we didn't have a lot of heat. But then, when we, when they, when they convinced us to come back, 
we had major heat. And I could tell you some crazy stories about, I mean, some stuff that happened. But what happened basically is we went down for two weeks thinking we were just going in for two weeks to try it out. And they gave us the straps, which I guess was their kind of way to get us back. And then he called me um, a week later and he goes, Amigo, we want you to come back. And I go, well, we, we have jobs, Jose. And he goes, well, we'll pay you $1,000 a week. And we're going to push you hard. And I've got this really, really good idea for an angle. And I talked to Bull, and he said, all right. And we went back, and that's when that – did you ever see that angle that we did with Invader at all? No, no, no. I've only uh, just seen, uh, you know, in print. But uh, talk a little bit about that, you know, because that's very fascinating. I mean, especially uh, anything involving Puerto Rico and Invader. I mean, I want to hear your story about your, your time uh, with, with uh, working with Invader. It was strange because, we, I mean, the angle was amazing. And Eric Embry was – booking at the time but invader was kind of still running you know whenever you're booking in puerto rico it's still always carlos and invader so what happened is is uh the the angle was basically that we would we were we wrestled carlos cologne and invader at the tv studios which was in miramal on the naval base right in san juan and there would always be the same crowd there every week and we wrestled them and the, and the deal was is that at the end of the match they caught a quick one on us and then we laid him out and we hung invader we'll put him on his back and then i held his legs and we hung him i mean for like a long time and a bunch of faces fed but the heels would come out and stop him so it was like a combination effort type thing and eventually there was nobody left except for uh tnt which eventually became savio vega and wwe mm -hmm. and he came out and he turned face he was a heel at the time he turned face so, so needless to say this was a huge angle Invader actually went to the hospital and stayed there for over a week. And uh, when he, during that time, we had so much heat. I mean, there were times, I'm not kidding you, this is, these are all honor stories. One time I came back, somebody had thrown a dart actually in my back. I sat down and there was an actual dart completely in my back. I don't know why they chose a dart, but it was, I didn't even know it. And my bull goes, dude, you got a dart in your back. And he pulled it out. And I was like hoping it wasn't poisonous, which it wasn't because I'm still here. Okay. Um, we had urine thrown on us. Um, I had M80s thrown at me. One time I was wrestling Invader, and somebody threw a softball, and I saw it coming. Well, maybe it was a hard ball. I don't know what it was. A, one of them kind of balls. And I saw it coming my way, and it hit me right in the eye and bruised the hell out of my eye. Um, it was That's a crazy territory. One time, Dickie Murdoch incited a riot at the studio where he punched a fan, and they came barreling into the dressing room, and we were kicking the door and trying to hold it and eventually it just got crazy and the police came and we had to jump in the back of a paddy wagon these are honest stories i mean and, and they took us to the police station and then we just had to get brought back to our cars from there that is a very intense territory but at the same time the island is beautiful the trips are easy the money was decent and you got to work five nights a week it was pretty cool Man, you, you talk about, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, the Invader and Carlos Colon and Dick Murdoch, you got to work with down there as well. And another guy that was doing the booking, you said, and a guy that uh, you, you got a chance to work with too in the USWA in uh, around 91, uh, Eric Embry. I, I always enjoyed uh, watching Eric where, you know, and I got a chance to, you know, in the last couple of years to go back and watch some of his stuff with uh, with Southwestern, with uh, Joe Blanchard's company when he was younger. His world-class work was very, very good. And uh, some of the internet, you know, the stuff he didn't point to Rico. I mean, this was a guy that could bleed buckets, but he also had just buckets of charisma to go with those buckets of blood. Eric Embry, boy, what a guy for the yeah. business. He was talented. You know, you're exactly right. That was a very underrated guy. Very talented, great charisma, good booker. He's the guy who actually booked us to USWA. What happened is, is we were in, uh, I'll make it short, me and uh, Bull were in Puerto Rico as the hangman, and we had our great run, and I mean, we sold out stadiums with the, the whole Carlos and then once Invader came back and it was just amazing and blah, 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 blah. But what happened is, is uh, Eric left and he said to us, he goes, Hey, if you guys, I'm going to USWA degree to book for Lawler. He goes, if you guys, once you finish up here, if you want to come there, give me a call. Well, what happened is eventually once we did drop the straps to Bronco and Invader, I called Eric on a pay phone because back then you didn't cell phones. And he uh, said, yeah, when do you guys want to start? And that's how we got to USWA, and and Tudor is word he was he was good to us. I mean, we had we got the straps from Lawler and Jarrett. We won them at the Mid South Coliseum against Lawler and Jarrett, and uh, we had a decent run there. I mean, the money was horrible, 
and the trips were long, and we were used to making $1,000 a week, and now we were making 300 a week. So that was a little brutal, and it, that did cause the demise of the hangman. Actually, that's why we broke up was because it just was such a tough experience. But 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 it, but it was cool because Eric did stand true to his word and brought us down there. Mm-hmm. So. And you, you also, it was like you went from one promotion to the other, but you also maintained uh, some exposure thanks to the uh, ESPN show with the USWA. And uh, yeah. I remember watching plenty of that. But I also, you know, end up, you know, through the years reading books and biographies and other stuff, finding out about just how, oh man, just how grueling that could be because Jarrett not only had uh, Dal- had Memphis, but he had Dallas. And sometimes there'd be this thing where you guys would do a taping, what, at the Sportatorium and go up to Memphis or was it mm-hmm. vice versa? I mean, talk about putting in some major hours just to make these these tapings and to get these runs. What was that like? I mean, the, the miles that you put on uh, alone could have been arduous enough uh, and then have the, the insult of what you guys were, were taking home per night. I can honestly tell you that was by far the most grueling time. And I enjoyed it, actually. Me, me personally, I did, but well, not so much. But bottom line is, is it was 2,000 miles a week and making $300 a week. Now, you know, and, and the funny thing is, is, you know, it wasn't just me and Bull. Uh, we stayed at the Capri Motel, which was actually the Scotland Inn is where we stayed at. And then right down the street, the Congress Inn was Tom Pritchard and Stone Cold Steve Austin, who wasn't Stone Cold at the time. And I had a Nissan Sentra, so I would pick us up, and then we'd go down there and get those guys. And we'd drive to the towns, and Steve would literally just cook a, big pot of potatoes and live off of those all week because we just didn't have any money. I mean, it's, it's weird when you think about these people watching us on TV and you're just basically starving. And we would wrestle Monday in Memphis, Tuesday at the Louisville Garden, Wednesday in Evansville, and then Thursday we would have a spot show. And after the spot show, they'd, they'd designate an area where we'd meet. We'd bring our cars there and we'd hop on that tour bus Faces and heels, Dundee, me, Robert Fuller, Jarrett. Lawler wouldn't be on there, but it'd be all the other guys. Lawler didn't do that Dallas. But we would all go down to Dallas, so we'd have to drive all night long to Dallas, and we'd get in about 10 a.m. in Dallas after the Thursday night spot show. And then we'd have we'd be at the Sportatorium, which is a cool place to be, a lot of history there. But then you've got, you know, six hours to sit there till the t- tapings to the show starts and then you do the taping and then you'd hop back on the bus and you would drive all the way back up to Memphis, get your car. And then you'd have to drive to the studio and do live TV at 10 AM. <laughs> and then you do the live TV. Now we had the straps, so we were like a main thing. And then after you did your live TV, you'd have to hop in your car and drive to Nashville, which is where we lived. And you do the Nashville gardens that night. And then you would have off on Sunday, and you'd start that whole routine all over again for three hundred dollars. Wow, what a grind that that was! And yeah, yeah I mean, geez, you, the the miles. I, I want to talk about some of the TV because again, there's another. When you t- think about Memphis, some of us fans, uh, you know, who are out of the area, uh, you know, as far as uh, what the, the TV show could be picked up, we've been able, thankfully, through the the benefit of YouTube through recent years, to be able to check out Memphis TV and what a, a really a legendary uh, show that was on Saturday mornings because when they mm-hmm. talked about how those ratings in that Memphis market would rival stuff like you know, Dallas or uh, Monday Night Football or something like that in, in comparison to their share as far as how many people in that Memphis area were watching it. And that could be very indicative to, as to what the houses were uh, at the, at the uh, Mid-South Coliseum that, that Monday. But yeah, the television, you know, it sounded like a grind traveling, but boy, uh, what a legendary institution that was when you think about Dave Brown, you think about, Lan- you know, Lance Russell and, and, and you know, Corey Macklin later on. But, but, but what, a, what a show that Memphis TV was. It was really cool, to be honest with you. I mean, we were we were getting underpaid, but we were very happy to be part of it. I mean, you know, there, like you said, there were so many names that came through there. It it, it really, truly was a, a, a great territory, and it was sad to see it kind of winding down. We were at the tail end of it. I remember literally being in the Louisville Garden, and we got there early, and I was sitting in the – the fans weren't even in yet. I was sitting in the, one of the stands, and Steve came out, Snow Gold, and he, He's like, hey, man, I got a call from uh, Dusty. Uh, I think I'm, I'm leaving. And I'm like, wow, man, congrats, dude. That's awesome. And, I mean, you know, the guys were moving on because the territory was just dying and it wasn't going to be much longer. And uh, what happened is is we and we had the straps 
and we ended up getting our notice because my partner unfortunately got kind of involved with our manager's girl, who was Jamie Dundee, and that caused a lot of heat, of course, and so we got our notice, and then uh, we left there, and then I came back to Milwaukee, and then when I came back to Milwaukee, um, he stayed there. He lived in Memphis from that point on with his new girl, and I lived in Milwaukee, and then at that time, I started thinking to myself, I need to find a new hangman partner, you know, because he sold me the gear. He goes, I don't want to do the hangman anymore, me and my, because do, do, do you remember when he was bullpaying? Yep, yep, I do. I definitely do. Uh, watching him. Uh, well, Donna, the girl Donna, uh, when they did the, the, what was that, Global Wrestling Federation? Yes, exactly what they did out of out of Dallas, the tapings at the Sportatorium. Yes. He started doing that with Donna, which was the girl that he had his little fling with, he left his wife for, and, and they started doing the Global. And uh, we had gotten fired, because that was Jamie's living girlfriend at the time, and he was our manager, so obviously once that all came out. That didn't sit very well with Eric Embry. And he goes, I brought you guys in from Puerto Rico, and this is what happened? And I'm like, I have nothing to do with it. So bottom line, long story short, he became bullpain. He said, I don't want to be a hangman anymore. And the shameful thing about it is this is such a bummer. His story's version is different than mine, but this is the truth. We left there. And we hadn't even left yet. And I called J.J. Dillon up in WWE. And I go, JJ, this is uh, Mike. I'm one of the Texas hangmen. He goes, oh, I'm familiar with you guys. And at the time, we're in the top 10 in pro wrestling, Illustrated's tag teams. I mean, we've been, you know, we had the Puerto Rico straps. We had the, the USWA straps. We've been around in the ADBRA. We had a good run. And I said, we really want to come in for a tryout. And he goes, well, when do you want to come in? I go, well, when's your next thing? He goes, three weeks. And I go, let's do it. And he booked us for, uh, it was um, Hartford. And I forgot what the other town was. So I called Bull up and I go, hey, Bull, we've got a trial for WWE and he's sending me the plane tickets and he goes, well, I'm thinking about doing this thing with Donna, which was Samantha. And he goes, I really don't want to wear the hood anymore and all that. And I'm like, well, think about it. Let me know. Well, eventually he decided he didn't want to do it. So then I called JJ back and I go, JJ, I go, my partner's met a girl and he's not interested in doing the hangman thing. He goes, well, we already sent the tickets. Do you want to come? I go, Yeah. So I went there, and I ended up wrestling Coco Beware and Jim Powers and had trial matches. But, you know, the hangman at that time was one guy. wasn't very impressive. So I didn't get hired. But the bottom line is is that that's how the hangman broke up, and that's when I, then I called him and I said, hey, can I buy the gear? Will you send me the gear or whatever, and I can get a new partner? And, and he sent me the gear, and that's, that's how the next evolution of the hangman became. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're getting uh, a little bit close to our, our, our time limit here uh, on yeah, the program. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, the next time we come around uh, to getting the chat again, which I hopefully uh, is maybe sometime before the year's up, we can kind of start up your story uh, right where you guys, uh, you, you know, parted ways as the original Texas hangman. He went to be Bull Payne. You uh, ended up uh, keeping it, the legacy of, of the hangman alive. I think that's a, a good place, a good, good spot where we could start off next time because I know there's so much more. Or uh, in regards to chapters and content in the story of your pro wrestling life, my friend. That would be great. You know, I, I would love to talk about my time with Tough Tom, how we became disorderly conduct, uh, our times in Japan. I got to team with Cactus one time. We, you know, uh, I was there ringside for the match with him and Terry Funk. Um, yeah, it'd be it'd, it'd be great. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Um, I, I get I, I realize I get a little long winded, but there's just you know it's a lot of stuff I'm very excited about from my past. You know. Well, here's the thing. Don't feel like you're being long-winded because this is the type of program where we are a long-form interview show. This is meant for you, my friend. So if you feel like you're getting long-winded, you're not. We're, the, the audience <laughs> is enjoying this. This is good stuff. This is your life story in the ring, my friend. So don't feel like that for one moment that you're going too long or you're going whatever. I would just say, keep it going. Stretch it, man. Let's keep these stories coming, man. You're, these are great memories. Nice. I'm waiting for part two, buddy. You just let me know. Absolutely. And yes, this uh, wraps up this edition of Wrestling Memories Then and Now. For Mike Moran, I'm Glenn Broggett. So long and thanks for listening.